Our Old Testament reading is from Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. And this is following what we read last time of Moses, who thought that the way to rescue one of his Hebrew brothers was by killing one of the Egyptians and uh, ended up having to flee Egypt where he's been for 40 years. We'll pick up the story at that point. But before we read, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day that you have made. And God, we thank you for your word which you have given to us. God, we do ask that you would help us this morning to hear your word. We pray that you'd help us to understand your word. That you'd help us to be ready to live what your word is saying to us for today. God, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of a land, out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt... You will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. Turning into our gospel reading, we see a time 
similar to what we just read. But rather than God revealing himself to Moses on a mountain, it's Jesus revealing himself to his disciples on a mountain with Moses and Elijah. This is Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 13. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, Why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We are continuing our look at the book of Revelation, and by way of reminder, before we get into the passage today, there are um, there's some things we've talked about thus far as to how we approach this book. And one of the things that we talked about uh, last week was how uh, the book of Revelation uses uh, images kind of the same way that you would use them if you were putting a political cartoon in the newspaper. And that there are things that have sort of these common meanings or understandings, and when you put those things together, then it means something else. So like we mentioned last week, if you saw a political cartoon of a donkey and an elephant and they're playing tug-of-war with the American flag, that means something. And it means something because of what each thing represents. And when you put them together in that way, uh, yeah, there's something there that maybe just a picture of a donkey or a picture of an elephant or a picture of a flag wouldn't quite have the same thing. Same kind of thing here. And uh, so last week, one of the things we looked at was this vision that John is having of, um, of someone who is walking among the lampstands. I don't know if you remember this part, but he, uh, he turns and he looks and he sees someone like a son of man who's walking among the lampstands and he describes everything that he looks like. And if, you're, if you don't remember that part, or if you weren't here last week, I would encourage you to go back and read Uh, in Revelation chapter 1, where he describes that. And every bit of that is using imagery that we get from the Old Testament as it puts it all together and is a way of uh, depicting that there is this one who is both God and man, who is priest and king, and who is walking among his churches. And it was a way of showing that Jesus is the one who is Lord of all and also is the one who is not only head of the church, but is aware of, of what is going on with his church. And so um, 
when we started the whole book of Revelation, it said um, in chapter 1, verse 4, as it starts as a letter, John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia. And now what's getting ready to happen is Jesus is going to have a message for each of these seven churches. And of course, as we've mentioned already, that these messages to each individual church are also, in a way, a message to the whole church. It's part of why there's seven of them representing all of it. And we'll see that at the end. As he's, who has an ear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And that shouldn't be too weird for us, because if you've read through the New Testament, you know that a lot of the books of the New Testament are things that, like um, a letter that Paul wrote to a church. But it's not just for that church. We read it and study it today because it's for us too. It is for our benefit uh, if we can understand what was being said to that church. And the same way here, we get these uh, kind of many letters, but um, from Jesus to these churches. And uh, there's seven of them. There's a, a pattern that they follow. Like if you were to look at a map, I didn't bring one this week, but I might in future weeks just so you can see it laid out. But if you look at a map of where John is in exile uh, on the island of Patmos, which says it's because of the word of God and testimony of Jesus, like there is some somehow some uh, persecution going on in the church. But he goes to this um, island of Patmos, and if you look at where each of these churches is in relationship to where he is, they kind of go in order. Like if you were going to take a road around, they follow that order. And so he is uh, sending these, uh, this, these messages to these churches that kind of go in this order of kind of a mail route, if you will. And each one has a lot of stuff that's very similar. So you want to see some really cool stuff? Here's what you do. Get your Bible that you're okay with writing in and get you some uh, different colored pencils or highlighters or however you like to do that and look through all seven letters in chapters two and three of Revelation and mark up all the things that are the same from letter to letter to letter. And as you do that, you will notice uh, what they have that are the same and then also where the distinctions come in. And... um, yeah, that, you'll see some cool stuff. I'll point out some of it, but you'll see a lot more if you do this yourself. Before we get into the first letter, though, um, I want you to imagine that, uh, that you are somebody who operates an ambulance, and you get a call that there's somebody who needs ambulance service, and so, of course, you rush right on over to them. And then when you, uh, when you get out of the ambulance, you find the person who is there, and you see what has uh, caused them distress. In fact, they've actually uh, been in a vehicle accident, and, um, yeah, they were driving too fast on the road. There was a bend, and they rolled it. They're trapped in their vehicle. They can't get out. But you're there. And so you say to other people that are on your ambulance crew, you turn to them and you, and you say, look at this man. Do you see what has happened to him? 
See, this is why I don't drive like that. And then you stand around and you talk about how bad it is that he got in this situation. What an idiot. And then you get back in your ambulance and you drive back. It's ridiculous, right? That's not what ambulances are for. That's not what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to get this person out of that situation, help them to get to the doctor who can heal what is broken in them. Here's what would be even more ridiculous is if every member of that ambulance crew with you, yourself included, had been in a similar accident previously, had been taken to a doctor by an ambulance crew in the past, which is why you joined up with the ambulance crew at all. Okay. Now to Ephesians. (laughs) To Revelation chapter 2, which is a letter to the church in Ephesus much like the book of Ephesians. It says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet, I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. We will continue with the rest of the letters later, but for today, we're looking at just this letter. This letter to the church in Ephesus. And we see that Uh, Jesus is described with language back from the uh, vision that we were looking at last week in Revelation 1. And it says, it's the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. This is Jesus who knows his church and is present with his church. And he says, I know your deeds. And we talked about last week, is it good or bad that Jesus knows what's going on with his people? And, well, it kind of depends, doesn't it? On if uh, they're doing what they are supposed to be doing or not. And he says, I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance, and all that is good stuff. He says, I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not. You have found them false. You've persevered and have endured hardships for my name, and you have not grown weary. And all this, to this point in the letter, sounds very good. Because it does sound like they are doing what they are supposed to be doing. They've got a lot of uh, kind of marks in the good column. Unfortunately, that's not how the letter continues, is it? So what is it he says to them in the not-so-good column. 
verse 4, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. What do you think that means? You have forsaken the love you had at first. Does this mean they're just going through the motions, they're doing all the right things, but they just don't feel it anymore? Is that what it means? If so, then what they ought to be doing is trying to figure out a way to reignite that passion and maybe get some better songs where they can feel it more when they're singing to God. That's not what he says to do, is it? Because his answer to this is not, I need you to feel it more. He says, you've forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. They need to repent. They need to turn away from what they're doing and actually do other things. The things that they used to be doing, they're not doing anymore. And whatever it is that they're used to do, but they're not doing anymore, is tied to the love that they had at first. You see the connection? When um, Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment, what does he say? He doesn't just give one, does he? He gives two. They're so tied together, you cannot have one without the other. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Everything else just hangs on that. If you get that wrong, it doesn't matter what else you get right. Paul says a very similar thing whenever he's talking about uh, the spiritual gifts that God gives to the church. And he says in uh, chapter 12, he's talking about the first uh, Corinthians, sorry. In first Corinthians chapter 12, he's talking about these gifts that God gives to the church. And then in 13, he says, but basically it doesn't matter what gift you have. If you don't have love, those gifts are useless. And so Jesus comes to this church and he says, you're getting a lot of stuff right, but you're getting wrong the thing that is most important. And because you're getting wrong the thing that is most important, the rest of it doesn't really matter. Here's how much he says it doesn't matter. He says, if you do not repent, what's he going to do? If you don't turn back to the love that you had at first, if you don't start doing those things again, what is it he's going to do? He's going to come. Is that going to be good? He's going to come to them and remove their lampstand. What does it mean to have your lampstand removed? Does that sound painful? I don't know. A lampstandectomy? That's not a thing. It means they're not going to be a church anymore. That's what we were talking about last week. He actually tells them in in chapter 1, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Each lampstand is representing a church. And he says, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand. I'm going to be a church anymore. Why not? What is it that the lampstand is supposed to be doing? It's to be a symbol of the presence of God and the power of God in the midst of the people. But it's also to give light as a testimony to the glory and goodness of God. Jesus says in... Uh, Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. 
He says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. And again, he says, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Here's what's happened. The people in the church in Ephesus had gotten really good at pointing out all of the brokenness in the world. They'd gotten really good at pointing out who all was getting it wrong, who all was living the wrong way. And Jesus doesn't say, no, you're wrong. They're not wrong in that. That stuff's good. He doesn't say that. Like, you're right. The stuff that you've called out as bad is bad. But hating the wrong things is not enough. That's not what we've been called to. And a church that is really good at hating all the wrong things, but isn't good at loving, isn't a church. They don't get to keep being a church. That's Jesus' message to the church in Ephesus. And I think that's his message to every church, which is why he ends by saying, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I mean, he says in verse 6, you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. You got it right. What they're doing, they should not be doing. It's horrible stuff that they're doing. The name of Nicolaitans actually means the conquerors of people, like whatever it is they're doing, and who knows if that's what they're actually doing or if that's just what the name gets to the idea of. But whatever they're doing, it's not good. And Jesus says they're not doing what's good. And you're right that you have called that out correctly. But Jesus says in the same way in Matthew 5 again, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. There's a lot more to what it means to actually follow Jesus than to hate the things he hates. We also have to love the people that he loves and to do the things that he does. So along those same lines, at this point, uh, it gets really, I should have warned you. There should have been like a Surgeon General's warning on today's sermon. This, this one's going gonna, it's, it's gonna to cut. But hopefully, uh, this is, you know, Jesus is depicted as the one who has the double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. His word is sharper than a double-edged sword. But hopefully this is uh, what cuts not to wound, but to heal, like a surgeon's scalpel. Because here's the temptation when we get to this point. Is we go, okay, how do I see myself like the the Ephesian church? Do I hate the things that Jesus hates? Can I call out where there's evil and brokenness in this world? Do I recognize that? Hopefully, yeah. 
there will be some other churches that aren't doing so well in that department. We'll get to those later. But for now, hopefully, yes. But then the question is, but how are we doing with love? Jesus says in Matthew 24 that the love of uh, many will grow cold. Is that where we are? Are we those, those who have let our love grow cold? That we become so jaded by all the brokenness of the world? That we have not recognized our role as those who are called to be healers within it? Can you imagine? I mentioned the ambulance thing earlier. Can you imagine a doctor? When you go to the doctor, you've got the broken bone, you fell out of the tree, and you go to them, and you're like, ah, you fix my arm. They're like, see, that's why you shouldn't be climbing trees. They're like, no, but, but, but the arm. And no, this is on you, buddy. <laughs> what? It's important to recognize the things um, that cause the problems, but it's also important to recognize uh, the love that says, I want better for you. I want you to be healed for your own good. So we, the temptation, I keep getting distracted. Here's what it <laughs> comes back to. The temptation is when you say, okay, so how are we doing on the love thing? The temptation is to really quickly come up with a list of people that we love. And we go, well, no, I, I do, I, I'm doing that. I am. I am. I love my, my family and my friends and other people like me. And I, I think I do all right with that. And if that's the case, Jesus says in, uh, later in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. He says, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Then he says, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. In other words... If, when we try to come up with our own list of self-justifying, like, no, 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 I do, I do all right on the love thing. If what we come up with is a list that doesn't look any different than the way the rest of the world loves people, how does that mark us out as Christians? How does that mark us out as followers of Jesus? As the one who loves people who don't deserve it who loves people even when they don't love him back. How are we doing there? How do our actions show that? I mean, this is what he says to get back to, to this church in uh, Ephesus, repent and do the things you did at first. John talks about it in the letter of 1 John, chapter 4. Uh, basically he says, we talked about the two commandments that Jesus gives as being so closely connected you can't separate them, love for God and love for others. 
And John basically is talking to people who are trying to separate him. And he says, you, you can't. If you, if, you, if you claim to know God and you claim to love him, but you don't love people who have been created in his image, then you're lying. You don't actually love God at all. This is 1 John 4, starting in verse 7. It says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit and we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There's no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. Whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Sound like a minor thing? Does it sound like something that's optional to a life of following Jesus? That's pretty central, isn't it? When Jesus is asked, what's the greatest command? What is it that we are supposed to do in this life? And he says, love God and love people. And then we go, okay, but love God and love some people. <laughs> love God and love people. These are connected. Love God and not actually love people. It's all connected. And so given what it says uh, all through as we're reading through the New Testament and we just see this over and over and over again, from Jesus, from Paul, from John. It shouldn't be any surprise then that this is the message that is given to a church that's really good at hating and not very good at loving. Read it one more time. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. 
Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And with that, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day that you have made. God, we thank you for your word which you have given to us, and we do pray that you would give us the ears to hear what you say to the churches. God, we pray that you would help us to see the people who you are calling us to love. Help us to see how we are to be your representatives as those who do not endorse wrongdoing and yet who love people well. God, we pray that you would help us to remove the barriers that we put up between ourselves and others as excuses not to love, whether it be their behaviors, their beliefs, various differences between what we recognize to be us and them. God, help us to be good disciples, learning from Jesus what it looks like to love well. God, that these would be the deeds that your church would be known for. Jesus said that the world would know his disciples if they love one another. God, we ask that you would help us to love well, that you would be glorified, and people would come to know who you really are. We pray this in the name of Jesus who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us this debt, as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.